Thank you to our musicians tonight for preparing our hearts <clears throat> to meditate for a few minutes on the cross. Uh, all my life as a little boy, I would hear stories about Jesus dying on the cross. I remember seeing movies back in when I was even seven, eight, nine years old about uh, Jesus. And uh, I knew the cross was a horrible thing, but it really didn't... Uh, have a, a great impact on my life. It just was like watching stories of other people that suffered and died and so forth. By the time I was 16 years old, my life had just spun totally into a pit of anger, and emptiness, frustration, and just lostness. Uh, my dad had started drinking, and I was just filled with rage and anger, and I was, I was mad at everybody. I was mad at... Uh, my teachers, I was mad at my parents, I was mad at the world, and I suppose I was mad at God, I don't know, uh, I don't remember thinking that, but uh, I was just filled with rage and anger, my mouth was filthy and foul, and my heart was black and dirty, and uh, one night while I was working in a little restaurant that we owned, uh, saw a newspaper headline about a plane that had crashed. It said like 120 people were killed in that plane crash. Now that should have evoked sympathy and emotion and compassion from me, but it just brought up a, a statement. I even said it out loud. I said, good. I wish it had been a 1,000. And as soon as I said that, I was so stabbed in my heart. And I thought, what is wrong with me? How could I delight in people's suffering and people dying? And uh, for the rest of that evening, I was troubled. And then I went home, and that night, after I got in bed... It all came back, just a flesh, fresh uh, flow of deep conviction and sorrow and sadness. And I honestly thought that maybe I was actually losing my mind. We lived in a town just really close to a mental hospital, and I had seen a lot of people who had lost their mind, and I thought, is that what's happening to me? And then as I came under such deep conviction, I had no idea it was conviction. I just knew I was feeling deeply sad and sorrowful and, and ashamed. And I couldn't believe that I, I felt evil. I felt wicked. I actually felt like I was the worst person on earth. And I didn't even know what to do. I didn't know how to pray what to pray. Nobody had ever given me the four spiritual laws or anything like that. So I just cried, and I cried out and said, God, show me how to love. I don't think I love anybody. Can you show me how to love? And in that instant, I didn't see a vision, so it wasn't some mystical thing. But in my mind, 
I clearly saw the cross. And in thinking of the cross, I said, that's the way? That's what love is? And if he loved me that much, then I can trust him to love other people through me. I had no theology at that time. I didn't know even how to pray. I don't even know exactly. I don't guess I prayed the, quote, sinner's prayer. But when I said, God, show me how to love, and I beheld the cross in my heart and mind, God saved me that night. And he poured into my heart a love that I had never even dreamed about. It was much more than I was asking for. When the Bible says that God will give us more than we can even ask or think, that's what he did for me that night. He poured into my heart the love of Christ. And as I began to study my Bible years later, I mean, uh, over the years, I saw things like the love of Christ is poured out in our heart by the Holy Spirit and things like that. And it all kind of fit, made sense. All I knew that night was that the cross was the greatest expression that God could ever give to show the ugliness of sin and the greatness of God's love and the justice of God against sin. And my life was radically changed that night. That was uh, in October of 1960, 1960, and uh, 61, I guess it was, and, uh, and my life was radically changed. I cried the rest of the night, cried myself to sleep that night, tears of joy, though not sorrow, but tears of joy. I was afraid to go to sleep, because I thought, what if I go to sleep and when I wake up, this love is not there. What if I wake up in the morning and all the anger is back? But I finally did go to sleep, and then I did wake up, and it was still there. <laughs> and I went into the kitchen where my mother was making breakfast, and I grabbed her around the waist, and I said, Mother, I love you. And that was a shock to her. Not that she doubted that I loved her, but I had not ever said it that I know of. And she said, well, I, I love you too, son. And I said, yeah, but I really love you. And then my brother came in, Don, and I grabbed him. I said, Don, I love you. And that's about something we usually said to one another as brothers. So he took a step back, and he said, oh, oh good. <laughs> And I said, I really do. I went to school, and I just began to tell everybody I met that I loved them. I even told Miss Elta Doris, my English teacher, who if there was anybody that I might not have loved, it might have been her. <laughs> and when I told her that I loved her, she said, 
have you gotten saved? And I said, I, I guess so. And I told her what happened. They all focused though, on the cross. And so from that time to this, the most meaningful thing in my life has been the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll celebrate the resurrection with all the gusto of, uh, that you can imagine this coming Sunday. And uh, obviously, the resurrection is the cornerstone. It is the centerpiece of Christian truth and doctrine. But there could have been no resurrection without Good Friday. There could have been no empty tomb without the bloody cross. And it was on that cross that God answered the question for me that I wasn't even asking. What I should have been asking and the question that the world should be asking and that everybody you know should be asking is how is it possible for a sinner like me to ever hope to stand in the presence of a holy God and hear him say, welcome, come live with me forever. Now, that's not the question most people are asking today. People are asking lots of questions, but they're not asking that question. But that's the question they should ask. And the answer to that question is the cross. That's the way God did it. That's the way he demonstrated how ugly, how awful, how heinous, how terrible sin is. We want to see how ugly sin is. We don't have to look, I mean, we can look at, at, at a lot of things in this world. But if we want to see the ugliest expression of sin, we see it in the cross. And if we want to see the greatness of God's love, we look at the cross. And if we want to see the absolute perfect justice of God, a God who could never, ever, ever overlook sin, a God who could never, ever just say, okay, I forgive you. No, because a price had to be paid. A ransom had to be given. A death had to occur. And a curse, a curse had to be pronounced on the perfect, sinless Son of God who became a curse for us so that we could be blessed with forgiveness. Now, when I want to read some scripture to meditate on the cross, where would I go? Well, there's lots of places I could go. I could go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I could go to Romans, or Galatians, or Ephesians, or Colossians, or virtually any place in Acts. But I want to look at the cross tonight through the eyes of someone who was not at the cross, but you would think he was at the cross. Someone has said that this passage sounds like someone writing who was kneeling at the cross. And it's in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, 
Isaiah, that book in the Bible, Truett, you probably already know this, but it has 66 chapters. Just like the Bible has 66 books. The book of Isaiah is divided into two sections. 39 chapters that talk about judgment. 27 chapters that talk about hope. Just like our Bible is divided into 39 books that talk about the law and the condemnation that it brings. 27 books that talk about the grace that Jesus brings. That 27 chapters is divided into three sections. And all of them talk about hope and how things can be made right. The first nine chapters talk about how Jerusalem and Israel can be restored and forgiven. The last nine chapters talk about how the whole world will someday come under the kingdom of God. And we see those beautiful pictures there of the end times. The middle nine chapters talk about how we can be saved. And the middle chapter in that middle section is chapter 53. That is the middle chapter of the middle section of the part that talks about salvation. And the middle verse (laughs) is verse 5, which says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... We are healed. Isn't that amazing? The middle verse of the middle section, of, I mean of the middle chapter, of the middle section of the passage on salvation, of the part of Isaiah that speaks of salvation. God is so orderly. Isn't he? I want to read this 53rd chapter, and then that will be our... Meditation for tonight. And actually, let's go back to chapter 52. The break of it was not a good place. Chapter 52, beginning in verse 10. He talks about the uh, servant of the Lord. Israel had always longed for a king. They were looking for a king to come and deliver them from all of their earthly enemies. But God says, no, there's, there's to be a one to come. The Messiah will come. He will come as a king, but he first will come as a servant. And not just as a servant, but as a suffering servant. And by his suffering, he will accomplish salvation, forgiveness. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
so shall he sprinkle many nations, many Gentiles, many people outside of Israel. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? In other words, who can believe this? This is astonishing. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This speaks of his miraculous birth, of course. It also speaks of his uh, plainness, his commonness as a man. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, said it looked like there was no hope for him to even have any descendants And they made his grave with the wicked, two thieves dying side by side with him, and with a rich man in his death, buried there in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord. The King James says, and actually the Hebrew said it, pleased the Lord to bruise him. How is that possible? Because God knew that the only way that he could deal with sin and have a bride for Christ was to crush him. So it was the will of the Lord to crush him. and He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering and he shall prolong his days. That speaks of the resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You know, of course, I'm wanting to preach a sermon on every one of these verses. Therefore... I will divide him a portion with the many. 
And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. That's our meditation for tonight. Do you see Jesus in every, every word in this passage? You see the cross and the real question that you should ask, all of us ask, I ask, God, how in the world is it possible for someone who has sin in their life to ever hope to stand in the holy presence of God? And the answer is the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray, turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That verse starts with all and it ends with all. If you walk into that verse as a sinner, all we like sheep have gone astray. And you go through that verse, the Lord has laid upon him my iniquity. You come out the end of the verse a Christian. All have sinned. Christ died so that all who trust in him, their sin will be forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you tonight to uh, help us think deeply and clearly about the cross. And if there's anyone here, anybody here, who has not asked that question and heard your answer, I pray that tonight they would. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to uh, give you an opportunity to respond to this, uh, just a, a brief invitation. I'm saying, oh, the blood of Jesus. And uh, if you need to come tonight and say, Pastor, I want to let the cross work its effect in my heart as I trust in Jesus. You come.